This is Global Humanist Shop Talk, the podcast edition. I'm M.L. Clark. When I first came to Colombia, I prioritized visiting and paying tribute to local history. To some extent, that's just part of my background as an Anglo-white Canadian who was raised to honor cenotaphs on Remembrance Day and to pay attention to all the little plaques and statues and monuments wherever I traveled in the country. Long before leaving Canada, my relationship to monuments had already significantly changed with my deepening understanding of the history behind various plaques and statues. But when I entered a new country, a country fresh from an historic peace treaty ostensibly ending 50 years of civil war, I felt a responsibility to learn as much as I could about the past and ongoing impact of this conflict. For this reason, I prioritized visiting statues, monuments, and museum exhibits in my new home. My very first visit in the country was to a kind of memorial I had never experienced before, but which has been a key part of Colombia's approach to restorative and rehabilitative justice in the last few decades, the Memory House. There are at least 27 such sites in the country, most formed by the regional communities, a few by the state, and in Bogota, the building is called Centro de la Memoria, Paz y Reconciliación, the Center for Memory, Peace and Reconciliation. I should mention too that this visit took place on my very first full day in Colombia, during a two-week test run in January 2018, and my Spanish was absolutely terrible. And what a sorry sight I must have seemed too while wandering the city in those early days. I am an extremely white person, the kind of blinding whiteness that, as the joke goes, could bring down airplanes if the sun ever directly reflected off it. I also come off as very feminine, with the typical curves and a slightly babyish face, five foot two and three quarter inches, thank you very much. And I was alone in Bogota, awash in culture shock, desperate to prove to myself that I could navigate this whole new world on my own, that I could pull off the coming emigration when so many people back home didn't think I could or should even make the attempt. When I arrived at the memory house, bright and early in the morning, one of the security staff took one look at me and told me that I shouldn't be here alone because it wasn't safe. I was baffled by this. All I could see was the stark, light sandy brown monolith of the main structure built into a corner of the city's central cemetery like a living tombstone with all its main exhibition rooms and passageways requiring us to walk below ground as if descending to meet the dead and to learn from them, and with soils from every corner of the country interred within the walls like symbolic seeds for a greater peace that will not forget its victims. There was a columbarium to the left of the center and a broad open park to the right, and both looked fairly quiet at 8.30 a.m. 
but the female security guard insisted that even though this institution and its purposes were quite lofty, it happened to exist in one of the most dangerous and violent crime-ridden parts of the downtown core. Later, I looked this up and found that she was not joking. At the time, though, it was bright and early on my first day in Colombia. I really wanted to see and pay my respects at this house of memory, and so I promised her that I would just wander through the exhibits for a little bit and then put myself on the first bus away from here. And I'm glad I wandered through those below-ground halls dedicated to collaborative learning and mourning. I'm glad I saw the aspirational efforts that had been poured into all the little details and construction of the place. But the center's seasonal exhibit didn't exactly bode well either, because at the time I was visiting, its topic was feminicide, and the downstairs display gave me no reason to doubt just how dangerous the country has been and often continues to be in light of certain crimes. I would soon after visit the National Museum of Colombia, where there was another key exhibit about atrocity, this time in relation to recent massacres and long-standing suffering among indigenous populations. And oddly, there I felt a little more at home, because the exhibit reminded me of a 2016 academic visit to Winnipeg, when I had stood by the recently constructed monument to the missing and murdered indigenous women in Canada at the Forks, near the Udina Celebration Circle. That monument to Canada's twinned crimes of violence and neglect is a two-meter-high granite statue formed to follow the curves most associated with the female form, smooth on one side, rough on the other, with a hole in the upper half to represent passage between the gentle and the arduous in life. To me, at the time, that hole signified absence more than passage. Years later, in Bogota, I felt the weight of absence in a different kind of memorial, graffiti signage all along major streets, honoring the brutalized bodies of women and girls in recent city history. So many ways of making monuments to our histories, and so many reasons why. When we talk about statues and monuments, and Western culture has talked a lot about statues and monuments as of late, we don't tend to talk about the recorded history one finds in a memory house, or similar tributes to the victimized dead. Rather, it's the monuments of triumph and conquest that come to stand in for all forms of public memorial in those debates. And that's a real shame because this reduction of monuments to a specific subgroup means that when you see statues in the news, the most important questions about memorialization have already been put aside. What 24-7 news coverage loves is a good shot of a bronze or stone statue shattered or plunged into a nearby river by a cheering crowd of young protesters. 
what it fails to report is that those scenes are part of a larger question about what it means to make history something tangible, something often literally concrete in public space. Which is what we're going to address today, because it's that mental flip, that moment when we better understand how agency can be enhanced or lessened by our policies and cultures, which this humanist podcast always sets out to explore, one everyday object or concept at a time. You're listening to Global Humanist Shop Talk, podcast edition, and today we're raising up some of the dissonant histories, curious semiotics, and humanist concerns around the monument. I was fortunate in 2018 to visit the last home of Simón Bolívar, probably the biggest and most important name in most South American history. Bolívar is also known as the Liberator because at the turn of the 19th century, he led a series of military and political campaigns to free huge tracts of South America from Spanish colonial rule, bringing independence to the region through the creation of a somewhat ironically named Gran Colombia, Christopher Columbus, which would later settle into the current borders for Venezuela, Colombia, Ecuador, and Panama. Bolivar died in 1830 on a sprawling estate in the hot and humid city of Santa Marta, a part of the country more often visited for its beaches and its national park, where there are even more beaches. The estate makes clear, though, why the supposed liberator of South America from Spain would name his dream republic after Spain's most famous colonizer. The estate is richly old-world European in its infrastructure, its monuments, its gardens, and its division of slave and free person living quarters. Even though statues of Bolivar, usually atop a powerful steed, exist in multiple in every major city, or perhaps because of that exalted representation of him, I soon found that everyday Colombians know as little about Bolivar's war crimes as everyday Canadians know about the extreme, even for his era, white supremacy of our first Prime Minister, Sir John A. Macdonald. On June 15, 1813, in the middle of his campaign to overthrow Spanish rule, Bolivar signed El Decreto de Guerra a Muerte, a decree of war to the death, that gave his soldiers legal license to slaughter or commit other atrocities against anyone born of Spain who was not actively fighting for independence, along with amnesty for anyone in the Spanish armies who was from the Americas by birth. This decree was enforced for seven years before Bolivar and General Pablo Morillo declared that their war of independence was to be a more quote-unquote conventional war going forward. 
but most Colombians and Venezuelans I've spoken to are not aware of this atrocity. It's just not important, or at least not as important as what Bolivar represents in the way of local pride. And so Bolivariano imagery is as unquestioningly present in public spaces as are the country's Catholic icons, not least of which include Virgin Mary or mother and child imagery in almost every possible outside venue. Does this mean that Colombia is immune, though, to the movements that have seen statues come down in Canada, the US, and Britain for the representation of brutal figures from colonial history? Not at all. Indigenous groups in Colombia brought down the statue of an early conquistador, Sebastián de Belalcázar, and although the Ministry of Culture decried the action, calling public monuments an open museum for the benefit of all, it also conceded in June of 2021 to taking down statues of Christopher Columbus and Isabella the Catholic, the queen who expelled Muslims and Jews from Spain, and of course funded Columbus's historic 1492 voyage. One of the delightful ironies of a racist society is that even when many of us try to advance anti-racist ideas, we still often center ourselves in the action because we're just so used to being the most important part of the story. Consequently, it might surprise white North Americans to learn that Latino communities in South America are similarly conflicted about what to do with monuments to oppressors. That the story of statues told by most 24-7 news media, a story that treats this struggle as being about specific black and indigenous communities resisting white history, is completely missing the big conversation playing out with statues all over the world. Then again, maybe it won't surprise you because some of these intersectional issues are also playing out right now in parts of the U.S. In particular, one of the best stories I've yet heard about statues is The Return of Oñate's Foot, an episode of 99% Invisible that gets into an immensely complex array of motivations and traumas as it tells the story of a Spanish-descended Estadounidense, U.S. citizen, who made it her mission to see a Spanish conquistador celebrated in her city as a counter to all the statues for white conquerors that exist elsewhere in the U.S., and the indigenous community that reacted in horror and with protest to the added glorification of another of their ancestors' murderers. This episode cannot possibly top the wealth of research that has gone into investigative journalism like that podcast episode, or of the sort that you can find in a special issue of Public History Review, February 2021's Statue Wars, Protest, Public Histories, and Problematic Plinths, which at the time of this recording was free to read, and which contains a wealth of commentary exploring today's theme from a wide range of interdisciplinary perspectives and academic backgrounds. And if you're looking for something a little less formal, but still polished and compelling, you could certainly do worse than reading or listening to former New Orleans Mayor Mitch Landrow's 2018 memoir, In the Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History, or Marie Alana's 2014 biography, Simone Bolivar, American Liberator, which has all the momentum of a novel while presenting its influential slice of continental history. So what can I offer in the shadow of so much excellent research on these themes? Simply this, an invitation to step back and reframe how we respond to the latest news item around this issue 
based on the knowledge that our microcosms of conflict exist against a greater backdrop of questions about human agency. Specifically, what kind of world do we want to celebrate in our public spaces? What kind of approach do we want to take to selecting who represents the best of us? In Medellin, there is another common form of street statue, the statue celebrating the humble worker, the farmer in his or her field, the fisher folk, the construction laborer, the nurse, the abuela or abuelo, grandmother or grandfather, hard at work in their home, and the spirit of the indigenous ancestor. It's not just Medellin, mind you. In Monteria, a whole statue series has been dedicated to the local indigenous population, and there are similar representations in many coastal cities too. But Medellin is especially interesting because it's a larger urban center, just a little under the population of Toronto's core, that is not ashamed of its rural heritage and of celebrating the value of hard and ongoing work from across many fairly mundane but also essential fields. While you can most certainly find busts and transit art celebrating painters, writers, and politicians of earlier generations, there is also a contemporary shift toward representing social history, domestic history, the history of the everyday, in monuments, statues, and of course graffiti on these streets. Oh, and obviously, if you visit, don't you dare miss out on a graffiti tour. Locals will love you for supporting the artistic highlights of Medellin instead of running off to visit sites of narco-trafficking trauma just because you think it's cool to talk about Medellin's most notorious criminal with everyone you meet here. Trust me, it's not. What is a statue for? What does our choice of monument tell us about the values of the societies in which we live? These items are not just aspirational, they also do active work in the public sphere, presenting us with quiet, or not so quiet, arguments about what matters enough that it should be given a chance at greater longevity than the people walking past. Criticism of statues goes back at least to the time of Aesop, the original woke dude of 6th century BCE, whose fable about a man and a lion arguing over whose species is stronger ends in the original Greek with the man pointing to a statue of Hercules defeating the Nemean lion as proof of human superiority, and the lion pointing out that if lions had sculpted this scene, it would have had a different winner. Chaucer, Another classically woke dude refers to this fable in one of his most famous Canterbury tales, when the wife of Bath defends women from gendered criticism by suggesting that the story of the female sex has been painted by the male, and it is now an utter cliché, casually spoken and rarely seriously considered, to say that history is written by the victors. That concept, however, is so profoundly toxic because it suggests that even if your society is calling for a change in priority in public monuments, away from figures with distinct histories of violence, toward more representations of social history, trauma, reconciliation, and collaborative practice, 
the debate can still only ever be seen as a fight, a battle, itself a violent contest between dissenting points of view. The real mental flip around statues comes when we allow ourselves to see the destruction of public objects as something other than a battleground, and more of a direct rebuttal to the statements being made by the objects themselves. You'll note, of course, that I'm not saying, yes, go forth, vandalize away, and no one is ever allowed to feel any alarm at the sight of destroyed historical objects in their local world. I'm simply saying that there is a bigger argument being enacted in the choices that citizens all over the world are making with respect to the kinds of statues they want to build for the future and the ones they want to see removed. 24-7 news tends to reduce this argument to the spectacle of a single statue coming down, or perhaps the fear of a cascade effect in the coming days and weeks, a whole series of other statues suddenly in peril. What we need instead is a culture of reporting that situates such events within the ongoing policy question of what we want our public space to look like, to represent, and to leave for generations still to come. What arguments do we want our communal iconography to make? Issues of representational art are neither new nor experienced solely by white Westerners in response to black and indigenous social justice movements. To pretend otherwise, as our drama-happy media often encourages us to do, is a different kind of public destruction, one which reduces our ability to talk about the making and remaking of meaning in our cultures. The toppling of individual statues is only one part of the conversation. Just think of all the people we can raise up when we refuse to let ourselves become distracted from the far more urgent work of building healthier public spaces for us all. This has been Global Humanist Shop Talk Podcast Edition with M.L. Clark. New episodes launch every other Friday, first to Global Humanist Shop Talk, the column available at OnlySky, and then to other podcast distributors. Maurizio Ferras is my one-man dream team of an audio production specialist. Studio space and resources were provided by Agencia El Grifo. Theme music comes care of Kabbalistic Village on SoundCloud. And other background music is courtesy of Joseph McDade. All of this would not have been possible without my patrons, the vast majority of whom support me through Patreon, where I post a monthly newsletter, along with other updates on the full range of my writing projects. None of us excels without the support of a community, and I am deeply thankful to have found mine. Shop talkers, humanists, fellow travelers on this pale blue dot, wherever this episode's little mental flip finds you in your lives, Please remember to be kind to yourselves, to seek justice where you can, and above all else, to keep the conversation thriving. Mm-hmm.